Today we're going to be looking at a story that is very, very familiar. Most of you have heard this story many times. But what I hope we can do today is to walk in and feel the emotion to feel the, the weight of, of what's occurring in this very familiar story, yet a story that if we're not careful, we can disengage a little bit from. Sometimes when we're familiar with something, we forget that God's Word has something new to say to us over and over again. Not because God's Word is new, but because God continually reveals himself in and through his word. So today we're going to be looking at a lot of names, a lot of places, and a story that many of you have heard before. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I mean 1 through 7. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, let's hear the word of our Lord. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David to a town called Bethlehem because he was at the house in lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men are like grass. And all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, O Lord, stands forever. May this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Lord, we recognize that unless you speak, Nothing of any eternal significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the verse we start off with today, the very first words, it says, In those days. This passage is filled with anticipation throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. You've been waiting. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Our relationship with God is broken. We're living under the curse of the fall and sin, and we're waiting for someone to come to the rescue. Now, these days were unique. The Jewish people were living under occupation. They had been taken over by the Roman government. The Romans ruled the world at that time. Yet God used the Romans to build roads connecting the world. God used the Romans to bring a false peace called the Pax Romana. It was a peace that was forced upon the people. And God had used the Greeks to bring a language that united most of the world. 
Jewish people have been living under oppression and in a difficult situation. And it's in those days that a decree goes out from this man named Caesar Augustus. Now, I'm going to give you some history. This is some extra biblical stuff. What I'm going to talk about, you don't need what I'm going to give you to understand what God is saying here. Yet when we see this, we get to go a little bit deeper into what was happening, into the emotion and the reality of what's going on. So Rome ruled the world. They ruled the world from England all the way to India. And they were ruled by a series of Caesars. The first one was named Julius Caesar. He didn't really unify. He ruled with a senate. And upon his death, all of his children began to fight with one another. Who will take over? The winner was his adopted son named Octavius. Octavius changed his name to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus would do away with the senate who pronounced him God. He was pronounced God in the flesh, God incarnate. And they said, Caesar has come to make peace. Caesar has come to bring peace on earth. They believed he would do what only God could do. The poet Virgil who wrote it this time said this, The one who is to come will be the divine King of salvation for whom mankind has waited. The one who is to come, he'll be the divine king of salvation that man has waited. And Virgil's saying, that's Augustus. The divine king of salvation for whom we've been waiting is Caesar Augustus. That's what the world was saying. He's the one who has come. Remember Jesus near uh, the end of John the Baptist's life. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or is there another? All the world was living in anticipation. Someone's coming. Virgil also said he'll annihilate the evil of the past and free people from fear. 117 B.C., a star shot across the sky. And Augustus Caesar said, That star is my father, Julius Caesar, going to be with Zeus in heaven. And you didn't have social media at this time. So if you wanted to share a message with everyone, here's how you did it. You printed your coins you stamped them with a message. And Caesar Augustus had a coin stamped with this. On one side, it showed the star, Julius Caesar, going to be with Zeus, they believed. And on the other side, it declared Caesar Augustus to be the Son of God. You see, the enemy, Satan, he always creates counterfeits to the real thing. Caesar had brought a peace, they said. They had what was called the gates of Janus. And when the gates of Janus were closed, they said it's the time of peace. And there had been peace in the Roman Empire for a long time. But here's what that peace looked like. If you cause a problem, we'll crucify you. 
You cause a problem, we'll kill you. Our peace is a forced peace that if you step out of line, we'll destroy you. That's the type of peace that Caesar Augustus brought. See, the enemy's always been into counterfeits. I remember as a child, my favorite season of the year was Christmas. I loved Christmas season. You know the main reason I loved it? As a kid, I knew I was going to get gifts. In, in my culture, Christmas is the biggest gift-giving time of the year. And it was the time of year that I could say, I want that. And there's a good chance that I might get the gift that I wanted. Oh, but that gift, that gift is a counterfeit. That gift can't bring me the things my soul longs for. It can't bring me joy. It can't bring me peace. It can't bring me hope. It can't bring me love. Now, the reason many cultures give gifts at Christmas, it goes back to reminding ourselves at Christmas, God gave the ultimate gift. He took on flesh, sent His Son to come incarnate this world the ultimate gift was given at Christmas, yet we are quick to settle for substitutes. We're quick to settle for counterfeits. And right about the time that Christ entered the world, there were people popping up saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. All these counterfeits to the, who the one true Messiah would be. First thing we see, I've got, uh, I've titled this sermon, God Reigns Over Christmas. I think that's an important thing for us to remember. And I've got five things I want to show us in this passage. The first one is this. God reigns over time and seasons. In just the right time, God sent his son. In those days, what were those days like? These were hard, difficult, brutal days. The Jewish people, they were paying a temple tax. They were also paying taxes to Rome. Some estimate that the Jewish people at this time were paying 70 to 80% of their income to taxes. They were desperate. This passage is filled with brokenness and the desperation of where God's people are. And it was in those days, in that times and seasons. Here's what I know. Some of you here are in a time and season in your life. You're saying, let this season pass quickly. You're living with a hope. I hope this season changes. That'll make everything better. I hope something's different. I hope this will pass. Know this. Seasons change. Seasons pass. But if our hope is not firmly in Christ, the changing of seasons, the changing of times will never satisfy us. So people were desperately waiting, and God is over. He reigns over the seasons of your life. He knows right what you're dealing with. He understands it. He sees it. He can change it if He wants to. And sometimes He'll allow you 
to rest in a tough season. And let me tell you, sometimes the most dangerous season is a season of prosperity, where things are going really well, where you go, things are good. I don't really need God. So at just the right season, a decree went out from this man named Caesar Augustus. Look at this. He sends a decree that all the world should be registered. It's also under a man named Quirinius. We don't know a whole lot about him. But God, the most powerful man on earth, the man who says, I'm God incarnate. I bring peace. Worship me. I'm the son of God. This counterfeit, false deity that ruled the world. Our God says, I'm going to move him to issue a decree so I can accomplish exactly what I want to accomplish. The second thing we see is God reigns over world leaders. You know, we're all prone to this. Whatever nation you're from, wherever we come from, we're all prone to want to put our hope in world leaders. Maybe this leader will make things better. Maybe they'll change things. Oh no, we've got a tough world leader in control right now. We need to change that. We've got a tough national leader. We've got a great national leader. Whatever your thoughts are, we're all prone to want to put our hope in a world leader, but God is over the world leaders. He takes him and he says, the world should be registered. God is going to move the entirety of the world for two little seemingly insignificant people. All the attentions on Caesar Augustus, none of the attention is on this young man and this young woman living in a far off region in a town we've never heard of. In verse 4, or verse 3 it says, And all went to be registered each to his own town. Now we read that verse and we don't realize this is a verse of tragedy. This is a verse of national tragedy for Israel. Each went to be registered in his own town. Why aren't they in their own town? What's happened? See, in the book of Joshua, God gave the Israelites the land. And to each family, each tribe, he said, this is your tribal land, this is your tribal land. And then he would say, this is your family land. And he would say, that land is to be passed down from father to son to father to son. Don't lose the family land. Hold on to it. Farm it. Raise crops. Raise animals. Your family can live off the blessing of the land. 20, 30, 40 generations have lived off this land. Yet it's a tragedy. All went to be registered. They had to go back to their land. And Joseph in verse 4 Talks about this young man named Joseph. Now, when we talk about the people of the nativity, Joseph probably gets the least attention. 
He's named after this Old Testament hero at the end of Genesis. He saves God's people from being annihilated from starvation. He keeps the nation alive. And here's this young man named Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. That's a tragedy. What should Joseph have been? Joseph should have been, could have been. He's from the line of David. Perhaps Joseph could have been king. And he's a carpenter. Joseph, he could have been working the family land, raising animals, raising crops. Instead, he's a carpenter, going wherever he can to find work. You see, the thing we see here, the next thing, God reigns over people. Sounds simple, but God reigns over people. Don't forget that. There's often people in our lives that we look at and go, that's a hard person, that's a difficult person. What's going on here? God reigns and rules over people and God can move them. God moves each person to his own town in order to get this young man named Joseph to move. Now, Joseph... Can you imagine the scorn, the mockery, the teasing that Joseph endured? How people would talk behind his back, hey, you know that kid over that guy over there? He thinks his wife is having a baby by the Holy Spirit. Everybody would have laughed at him. What a foolish man! They would have ridiculed Joseph, scorned Joseph. And yet this ridiculed, scorned man living in a desperate situation is who God chose to make the father of his son on earth. He's going to be my boy's father. He's going to be the one that my son will look to and go, that's what a godly man looks like. He's going to look to this broken teased, ridiculed man. And my boy Jesus will know how to handle ridicule. He'll know it from his father. And it says they were living in Nazareth. Now we don't know much about Nazareth. It's so insignificant, not even mentioned in the Old Testament. But from history we can tell there's a town just a few miles away. Five kilometers. Its name is Sepphoris. And it's at Sepphoris that the Roman army came and brutalized and killed the entire city. They crucified 2,000 people in the city of Sepphoris, not far from where Jesus would have grown up. So Jesus was born into a sinful, death-stained, broken, fallen world. That's where he entered, into this hard situation. And it says he went from Nazareth, this town nobody's ever heard of, to the city of David. Now remember, from the Old Testament, Messiah's got to come from David. It's not optional. Messiah must trace his lineage back to David. And he comes from the town of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now some of you, we know the word bet 
If it in a mark, it means house. Same in Hebrew. This means house of bread. Jesus was born in a town called the house of bread. He will be the bread of life, born in the house of bread. Do you remember Jesus' first temptation? Hey, Jesus, you're starving to death. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Your body's about to die. Turn those stones into bread. And Jesus says, I won't do it. He denies the temptation of Satan. He won't turn the stones into bread. Adam and Eve, they're in a garden. Plenty of food. They're not hungry. They've got plenty to eat. Yet when the enemy says, eat the fruit, they eat of it. Why? Because they believe the lie about God. Jesus starving won't turn stone into bread. Adam and Eve have plenty, yet they believe a lie about God and they eat. All our sin boils down to us believing a lie about God. God doesn't really care about me. God's not enough. He, he's not going to satisfy my soul. I can't really trust in Him. You see, that's been the sin from the very beginning. Believing a lie about God. Jesus resists because He knows the truth about God. God had told Him, I will protect you in all your ways. That God would not let Jesus die by starving. God's going to protect Him. He trusted the Word of God even when He couldn't see what God was doing. Sometimes that's where we are. What's God up to in my life? What's He doing? I don't know. But can I trust Him in the midst of a tough season? Now, Bethlehem had been prophesied in Micah 5 2. There's several prophecies about Jesus. We're not getting into all those, but Micah 5 2, it speaks of, but oh, but you, oh Bethlehem, you are little among the clans of Judah. Jesus comes to this insignificant little town called Bethlehem, the house of bread. And that's where he'll be born. Yet God takes the most powerful man on earth, has him issue a decree so God can move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy so that the Savior of the world can be born. That's who our God is. That's how our God works. And it says, listen to this. It says, he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Listen to that sentence. His betrothed, who was with child. Those don't go together. Those two shouldn't be beside each other. Now, in, in, where I'm from, we don't have a concept of betrothal. We have engagement. Engagement's where you say, hey, I want to marry you, and they say, yes, I'll marry you. But an engagement is an agreement between two people to get married. And often, engagements will be broken. One of them will say, hey, I don't want to marry you, and they'll break off the engagement. That's not betrothal. That's not what betrothal looks like. If that's your idea, you're missing what's going on. Betrothal is a lot more like what many of you here in Ethiopia experience. I was talking with some uh, of our team this week, 
I asked him this question. I said, hey, how many of you, either your parents, your grandparents, or you know somebody who they had their marriage arranged, meaning the Smogleys met together and they said, hey, I think this guy and this girl would be a good fit. And, you know, everybody raised their hand. We all know somebody that's happened. That's happened. We, we've heard of that. We, that's familiar. So a lot of people, a lot of you are familiar with that. Then ask the question, what if the girl meets the guy and she's like, uh-uh, I don't like that guy. I don't want to be with him. Can she just be like, forget him? They're like, oh, no. No, 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 no. She's got to marry him. The, the, the smugglies, they've decided this is a good fit. You've got to trust that. Then I ask them, what if that girl shows up expecting a child? I say, well, oh, that's a different story. Now, that, that's a different story. That's a different situation. Now, that, his parents would be like, you're not going to marry that girl. They can't, you can't marry her. We're not going to let you marry her. That would bring shame upon our family. I said, well, what would happen to that girl? They said, well, she might give birth to the child. Maybe give it to a family member to raise. And then she might run off to another town where nobody knew what happened and hope somebody would marry her. You see, that's the type of shame. That's the type of scorn that Mary would have endured. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 21, uh, look at what it speaks of. It speaks of that they were to take this girl, this girl who was found to be with child, they were to take her to her father's house. And they were to stone her to death. You are betrothed to be married to this man you broke the betrothal. You've been unfaithful. You're going to be stoned to death. You see, a betrothal in most concepts, it's as binding as marriage. Everything, when betrothal happens, everything that's happened for this two couple to be married, except they haven't come together in intimate union. But pretty much everything else has happened. It would be like a divorce. That's the word even Matthew uses, a divorce for them to break this. And Joseph could have taken Mary and said, let's take her to her dad's house and we'll stone her and leave her for dead. Jesus' mom and Jesus' dad were scandalous. Everybody whispered about them. That's the girl. She's the one, she, she tricked her husband. He thinks that that little boy's from the Holy Spirit. What a foolish man. What a wicked, deceitful young woman. And then the people as Jesus would be raised, that's the boy. He was born in scandal. Everybody would be talking. Everybody would be betraying this. Her, his betrothed who was with child. Yet Joseph, <coughs> Joseph takes Mary as his wife. He endures it out of obedience. God calls him to that. So a couple other things God is over. We just saw a minute ago, God is over prophecy. 
All the prophecies of the Old Testament come fulfilled in Christ. One of the big ones is this one in Micah 5, 2 about Bethlehem. We're not going into all those, but here's what you need to remember. Jesus says he's coming back. Jesus says one day every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will gather at his throne and worship him. That's going to happen. We wait for that day. It's been a few thousand years. We're still waiting. That's all right. He's going to come back. You can rest on that prophecy. God reigns over prophecy. He does here and he still does today. says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. We don't know if they, we assume they show up in Bethlehem and she instantly goes into labor and gives birth to Jesus. We actually don't know that. She, they may have been in Bethlehem a, a week. They may have been in there a minute. We don't know how long they were there, but they come to Bethlehem. And this is Jesus' hometown. I was talking with some of our team this week and where I come from if a family member comes to stay you know the first question you ask them how long are you going to be here some of you would never ask that of a family member right uh, yeah, that'd be the most rude question you could ask no that's what we're asking you come to stay with us how long are you going to be here okay you can sleep on the couch right now I was talking to some of our team I said well no family shows up you never ask how long they're staying. You would never ask that question, right? And you guess what? You would give them your bed and let them sleep on your bed. And you would sleep on the floor instead of them. You see this idea of hospitality, welcome them, come on in. And the family might stay two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months. See my culture? If a family member stays more than a week, you start to go, okay, listen, it's, it, you, you've been here five days. Uh, what, what are you doing next? What, what's your plans? I think you've, you've been here a little too long. You know, we might, we might need to scurry along. That's not the culture here. No, the culture here is a family member shows up, come on in, sleep in my bed, stay in the best spot. Joseph shows up in the town where his family lives. Nobody gives him a bed. There's Joseph. He's got that girl with him. He should have taken care of her. Why has he still got that girl with him? It's not his child. You can stay down in the barn. We're not going to let you come up here and stay with us. You go stay down there. We're not bringing you in. Fifth point that we have today is God, is, God reigns over our situations in life. Just know this. Some of you are in tough situations. God knows and he reigns over them. Jesus entered the world without a room. You have no room, Jesus. We're not making a place for you. We're not going to welcome you. You can stay in the barn. You can stay with the animals. Could God have put Jesus 
in a home where the family was wealthy? Absolutely. No, Mary and Joseph are so poor that they offered doves when they dedicate Jesus. That's what a poor person offers. Could, could he have made his arrival less scandalous? I'm sure he could have found a way to do that. There was no room when Jesus entered into this world. Our hospitality to Jesus? Sleep in the barn. We don't have a place for you. God, welcome to our world. We're going to put you there. Yet Jesus would say to his followers, In my Father's house there are many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Wait a minute, we didn't have room for you, Jesus. Why are you making room for us? Jesus, we didn't prepare a place for you. Why are you going to prepare a place for us? See, Jesus entered this world broken, mocked, and scorned. And we didn't make room for him. Jesus enters into an oppressed, difficult situation. Jesus' life starts off tragic. He doesn't start off with all the advantages. A family that's mocked, a family in poverty, a family without a home, a family that's far off. And that's how he enters. There's no place for them in the end. So a few things we see today. One, we see God is over situations and times. Know that in your life, God is over the seasons of your life, the times of your life. You may be going, what's going on in this season? God knows. God's over world rulers. You may be looking out there going, what's going on in our world? There's violence, there's fighting, there's hatred, there's hunger. God is even over the godless Caesar Augustus who is a false god, God stills over him. God's over world rulers. God's over all people, even people who seem insignificant. Some of you are going, I'm not a, like, how could God use me? I'm so insignificant. I don't matter any. My life's tough. My situation's tough. God takes a carpenter named Joseph and a young girl named Mary he says, I'm going to enter the world with those two taking care of me. God's over prophecy. He said Jesus would come. Jesus came. Just as God said. And Jesus is coming back. What do we live for? Are we anticipating he's coming back? He's going to return. I want to live for that. And God is over all the situations in your life. Like I said, some of you are in tough situations. Know that God is over those. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It is true. It is good. And I pray that your word would do the work I cannot do. I can't save. I can't move hearts. I can't open eyes. So we trust your word to do that. We ask that your word would draw us near to you. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.